0: The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations-China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org, or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Ian Johnson, author of The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao. Ian is currently a freelance correspondent based in Beijing, writing for the New York Review of Books, The New York Times, The New Yorker, National Geographic, and The New York Times Magazine. He is also an instructor at the Beijing Center, teaching a course on Chinese religion and society. Ian, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here.
0: You have spent many years living in China on and off since the mid-1980s. What propelled you to write a book about the resurgence of religion in China, and why now?
1: I'd always been interested in this question. It was something close to my family upbringing, which was somewhat religious. And I always was curious what Chinese people believed. For a while, it seemed more like a personal interest. When I got back to China in the 90s as a newspaper correspondent, I noticed there was a big upsurge of interest in religiosity, spiritual issues. Temples were starting to be rebuilt. But it was only really when I came back again around the time of the Olympics that I began to realize it was a national issue, that it was something that many Chinese people thought of as the most important issue, which is what are our shared values as a society? What do we stand for, rather, uh, other than just making money? Uh, what unites us as a country? And I think these are profound issues, and many people were looking toward religion, not just organized religion, but other spiritual per- pursuits, many traditional ideas, to try to uh, answer this. I'll
0: In the book, you follow a range of religious practices over the course of a year, a year that begins with the Lunar New Year, in a variety of locations. How did you choose the places, the timing, the religions, and the events?
1: I was looking for a few things. I wanted to hit different religions, different parts of the country. I didn't want it all to be in big cities, so I made sure that there was one rural component. And I wanted to um, try to reflect this enormous country. It's, of course, impossible to do China so big, but it would be, if you were writing about the United States, you wouldn't want to just write about New York and Washington. You'd want to go to Texas and Kansas and some other places like that. So I tried to do that.
0: So is Chengdu Texas or Kansas? Uh, It's (laughs) more like California in some ways, because it's sort of this hippie
1: haven or something.
0: You clearly grew very close to some of the people whose stories you tell over the course of the book, and it was more than the year that you describe. You've gone back many times, it would appear, to these various places. Why do you think that they trusted you with some very personal reflections, and why did they want to share their experiences with you and through you, your readership? Because you made it clear that you were writing a book.
1: Yeah. I think they're willing to share because if you do spend the time, and I, I, it, is, it d- does take place in one year, but I got to know them and chose them in, over the course of the previous years because I had to choose these groups. I didn't just sort of bang, right about the first five groups I come, came upon. And I think actually what I found is that people were very forthcoming and very open because... They want the outside world to understand what it is to be Chinese, what Chinese people think and believe. They were excited by the idea. And some people said, Oh, you're going to be promoting traditional Chinese culture or something. And I said, Well, I'm not promoting it, I'm describing it, this resurgence of. And that was fine. People thought, That's great. We want the world to know what, w- what. I think many Chinese people, many people around the world in general, think they're misunderstood, that people don't know what their country's about. We. America often feel that, I think, that the outside world doesn't quite get America. They have cartoonish views of the United States. And I think Chinese people feel that, too.
0: And they weren't fearful?
1: No, uh, people were not fearful. I did write about an underground church. That's one of the five groups. But there were a couple of ground rules in that case, no video or photos inside the church. But I had full access and could talk to people and went to the Bible study groups, went to a committee they have that helps the families of political prisoners, uh, visited, uh, visited some of these families as well with the church, and that was fine. I think they trusted the Bible. And
0: you used real names.
1: I did. I used real names. Uh, I, I don't think that these issues are so sensitive. It's something that's part of a national discussion, really, and it's something the government recognizes as a problem and as an issue that it has to address, so I think it's surprisingly, people talk about it surprisingly openly in China in social media, etc.
0: That brings me very neatly to my next question. There seems to be something of a disconnect between some of the official policies and practices toward religion, like the removal of crosses on the churches in Zhejiang, as just one example, and what actually happens on the ground. Would you talk about that a little bit?
1: Well, the government, especially over the past year, last year in 2016, they had for the first time a religious affairs work conference, for the first time in 15 years, and then they issued new regulations on religion, so they are aware that there is this religious boom and they want to guide it. One of the top priorities they have, and this applies to NGOs as well, is they don't want foreign. Interference. they don't really want foreign money, they don't want foreign influence. So if you are a pi- pious Chinese person, whether Muslim or Christian or Buddhist or Taoist, by and large that's okay. Now if you have a lot of foreign ties, you're getting foreign money or you're going a- overseas for foreign training, that becomes problematic. I think overall the government is much more uh, comfortable with the so-called traditional religions, like Buddhism, Taoism, folk religion, and more skeptical about Christianity and Islam. And that's why, in the case that you mentioned, those crosses being removed in Zhejiang, they take actions like that. And I, I think this is something going forward that we have to keep an eye on.
0: So when they're taking the crosses down, it certainly sends a message that they're not approving of something. But they're not actually closing the churches, or are they?
1: No, that's an important distinction. They took the crosses off the steeples and off the tops of the buildings where where the churches were, but they didn't close any of the churches. They demolished one church. But fifteen hundred churches had their crosses removed. This is in one province, right. it's in Zhejiang. I think people felt in the provincial leadership that Christianity had become too visible. And if you took the if you take the, the highway in from the airport in Wenzhou to downtown, it's an elevated highway, and you look out over these buildings and you see all these crosses and you think, crikey, this must be a Christian city. In (laughs) fact, even in Wenzhou, maybe only 10 or 15% of the population is Christian. I think they didn't want such a public face for Christianity. And it was also a shot across the bow. Listen, don't get too big for your britches. Don't forget you're supposed to be um, under the party's control. Even if you're not, don't let us lose so much face by putting these crosses, and they have big red crosses often illuminated at night by, by putting these up on the buildings. So I think it was, a bit, it was a message, but it didn't spread beyond Zhejiang.
0: Mm-hmm. You make some very interesting observations, I thought, about President Xi Jinping's views toward religion. On the one hand, members of the Communist Party are supposed to be atheists, and there's no reason to think that he is not but he seems quite sympathetic towards religious practices, especially Buddhism. What do you think explains that?
1: Well, there are many theories about this in China. People look at his father and note that his father uh, was close to the old Panchen Lama I think it's more pragmatic, though. I I don't think he's a closet Buddhist. People also say that his wife, Peng Lian, that she's a Buddhist. And people used to say that Jiang Zemin's wife was a Buddhist. And I I think this is more wishful thinking. People want to believe that their leaders, or at least their leader's spouses, are like them. So they uh, make this transference. But it's probably, as I say, pragmatic in the sense that he realizes that, that religion can be useful to keep society stable and is willing to allow some religions, at least the so-called traditional religions that they feel are more under the party's control, that they can support this in some degree. And this, this goes back to the 1980s, to his first posting uh, outside of Beijing after the Cultural Revolution uh, in Zhengding, right. which is uh, <coughs> south of Beijing, just north of Shijiazhuang, a beautiful little town that's really worth a visit. And he supported the reconstruction of a, of a famous Zen Buddhist, temple back then so as you can see back then again it doesn't mean he's a buddhist but i think he realized this could be useful and he probably sees religion like
0: that today so in a way it's you say stability but it's pacifying people
1: right the communists uh famous or marx famously said that religion is the opiate Right, right in this case i think they want to use it as an opiate they think oh great if this is an opiate we can use it on our own population that may be a little flippant, but they, they do see it as something that can be useful. They, they realize that there's a dearth of values in society. They're not giving up the, the, the battle. They still have communist values, and if you travel around China, you can see all these billboards for the core socialist values, these uh, 16 characters, 8 words, such as thrift and patriotism and things like that. But they also realize that Traditional values can help out a lot. So There's filial piety, um, respect for elders, well, that is kind of like filial piety, but other ideas like that.
0: Well, you talk a lot in a variety of ways about morality. How does, if it does, or how do the religions in China promote morality?
1: Well, I, I think they promote morality in different ways. The main thing, though, that I think they promote is community, a sense of community, that people are looking for this. Don't forget, not too long ago, the vast majority of Chinese people lived in the village. And even when they lived in cities, they lived in these communist work units, the Danwei Right. So people lived almost in villages inside the city where you lived next to the people you worked with, and there was maybe clinics that you shared and so on, schools. This has all disappeared. As people move into the cities, the Danwei system broken down, People feel disoriented, and religion can provide some kind of guideposts. Um, but of course, all religions do have a, a more moralistic component as well. Don't steal, don't kill, etc. There's this overall feeling in Chinese society that there are no minimum moral standards. This term in Chinese, sometimes translated as bottom line, di xian. I think it's better thought of as minimum moral standards. People just feel that anything goes in society, and they feel cast adrift, and so. Religions or religious groups or spiritual groups can provide some kind of structure, kind of better, a message.
0: Do you see a challenge then or a potential challenge in religious devotion? Should the government feel challenged or threatened? And if the answer is yes, then how do you think the authorities will deal with religion and its adherence over the next five or ten years?
1: Well, throughout the ages and in many, many countries and civilizations authorities have hoped to co-opt religion for their purposes and it normally hasn't worked out the way people thought it would work. I think the government is quite aware of the risks, hence the new regulations on religious activities last year and the renewed emphasis on gov- on religions being registered with the government um, and things like that. But maybe the bigger issue is not that there's going to be a an uprising led by a religious group or that this is analogous to the Cold War in Poland with the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church in East Germany. I don't think it's going to be like that. I think what it does do in a more subtle way is it provides higher moral values, moral values and ideas that are higher than any government program. So this idea that right and wrong, justice is divinely given. as an old idea common in many c- countries and civilizations. In Chinese, it's often expressed with the word heaven, tin, that this is something that is given by a higher uh, a higher being or some sort of higher force, not necessarily a god per se, but something like that. And you have this in Chinese history, uh, with the upright officials who refused to cave in, Lord Bao, um, the, the justice, who, who was incorruptible. And Chu uh, Yuan, the old the sort of poet and official who committed suicide rather than um, see his country go follow the wrong path. So these are values that are hard to control, I think.
0: But that's my point. So yeah. maybe they should feel threatened. Well, I think
1: they, they might feel threatened, or, but I, I don't foresee some sort of religious uprising in the near future. I just think it's part of the growing complexity of Chinese society, and that despite the strong message coming out of Beijing, the strong rule of Xi Jinping, that the Chinese society is maybe a bit harder to control than people imagine. Right? It's just more diverse. There's more things going on.
0: Again, though, that seems to argue not for a major uprising, but for a diminution of central authority. because you end the book with religion provides a morality and frames of reference for universal aspirations like justice, fairness, and decency that are higher than any government's agenda. That seems to me to be a pretty profound criticism of not only the Chinese government, any government, that there, is, that there are universal standards. And I guess my point is that perhaps the CCP doesn't agree with that. It thinks that there are CCP standards.
1: No, that's right. China does not like the idea of uh, universal standards uh, they, or universal values. They, they, that term... Um, is almost taboo in China. It was really funny because recently I went down to Guizhou and I wrote a piece for the Times on this Chinese philosopher, this Confucian philosopher, I saw Wang that. Yangming, yeah. and how popular he is. And this party official said, oh, well, this just shows that you know, Wang Yangming stands for a, a conscience, an independent conscience. It's just like Martin Luther in the Reformation. <laughs> he said, and this shows that these are universal values. And he used the Chinese word, pusher, pusher, jadger. Uh, and I was like, Ugh. <laughs> are you sure you want to say that? <laughs> in fact, I didn't quote him saying that in the article because I didn't want to really get him in trouble. I think he was a bit silly in a way. But this is what he thought. And he's a, a senior official in charge of propaganda and all media in uh, Guizhou province, wow. which is you know, poor province, but it's still a, a pretty big job. Uh, so you can see that people, even though you're not supposed to think that, people in implicitly realize that these are universal aspirations, so we'll see what happens. (laughs) All
0: right, and on that note, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. Thank you very much for talking with me today.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me.